Hello. Before we start, I just wanted to warn you that this episode contains some discussion around topics of depression and suicide, which may not be appropriate for all listeners. It also includes strong language, parental guidance recommended. If you're uncomfortable with any of this, please stop listening now and pick another episode. Or you can listen to a censored version of the programme which contains no strong language on the British Library website. On with the show. There is still an underlying subliminal messaging to all women everywhere that we are lucky to be in the room. We are lucky to be allowed out of the kitchen. And so if we are going to be allowed out, we must behave ourselves or else we will be sent back. Even if I gain weight or I dare to age, if I dare to let my hair grow grey, then I'm considered disobedient and I will be shamed and called old and, and an old crone. Discredit is the new death. They used to just kill us. They used to burn us or murder us or we would just go randomly missing. And now they discredit, they kill our reputation. I just think the only way that we can ever truly solve problems is to be able to identify them first. And I don't think we still live, even with the internet and a culture where we can easily identify mental health issues. They're still very sensationalized in the media and there is just not enough information. And especially for younger people, they're not learning about these important things. My name is Jamila Jamil and I have unfinished business. Oh. Are we ready to go? Yes. Brilliant. So, Jamila, it is wonderful to meet you, albeit COVID style and remotely. And thank you so much. Welcome to Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. I'm Polly Russell, a curator responsible for an exhibition of the same name, which is open now at the British Library in London and around the UK. The exhibition is brilliant. If you can visit, please do. You won't be disappointed. But I wanted to get deep into some of the themes the exhibition covers, from women and mental health, to domestic violence, to comedy, to cycling, and much more. Each episode, a different presenter with an area of expertise or a burning question to ask will be using objects from the exhibition to explore ideas and themes with invited guests. Today, I'm thrilled to say that we have teamed up with the activist, writer, model and all-round women's rights champion Jamila Jamil to explore the intersecting realms of mental health and body image. I couldn't think of a better person than Jamila to join me to explore these areas because she's been a vocal and powerful critic of the diet industry and she's passionate about challenging the ways that women are often valued on the basis of their bodies and their looks. Her own podcast and social stream, iWay, addresses these issues head-on. iWay aims to create a safe and radically inclusive space on social media. In fact, they've assisted in changing global policies at Facebook and Instagram around diet and detox products being shown to minors. There's one particular object in the unfinished business exhibition that I really wanted to show Jamila. It's a leaflet from... April 9th. 1976. A new centre offering various forms of therapy, specifically designed for women, opens in North London today. I feel that this centre, opened in 1976, really addressed and explored issues that Jamila herself is interested in today. 
workshops on compulsive eating, achieving orgasm, as well as individual and group therapy are some of the services available. For further information, contact Susie Orbach and Louise Eichenbaum. Susie Orbach and Louise Eichenbaum created this, the very first women's therapy centre in 1976. So I thought it would be fabulous to introduce Susie to Jamila, a frontline feminist waging war against the patriarchy since the 1970s and a woman working against male oppression today. How have things changed? What's still the same? And why is women's mental health still an urgent conversation that we need to have? But I started first by asking Jamila why she cares about this and why she started the I Way movement. What I aim to do with my platform is just to hypernormalize these conversations around mental health, in particular for women or for marginalized folks, you know, who are under more stress because of our the oppression that we have to face than maybe other people who are less marginalised than us. And I think there's something particularly powerful sometimes about taking someone with a huge influence who looks like they have it all and looks like they are absolutely thriving and they are you know, beautiful and rich and successful and yet they are still struggling with the same issues that you are. I think it's more likely to make you feel a little bit less alone in your own experience and realise that if this person with all of these opportunities still doesn't have their shit together, then it's okay if I don't either. I would think that's so true. You know, I was listening to the podcast that you did with um, Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, and you talked in that really quite movingly about your suicide attempt when you were 26. And you specifically said that that made you focus on mental health in a very specific way. And I was really interested what you meant by that. Well, I guess it's the fact that I recognised that it wasn't my first attempt and I was just going to keep trying uh, if I didn't really just wipe the slate clean and and go back into all of my old pains and traumas and and whatever toxicity I had in my life and just sort of intricately, almost surgically remove it one by one by one. Learn learn about mental health so I could identify the issues and then almost like Liam Neeson in Taken just sort of taking them down uh, one after the other after the other. And so it's been a sort of like eight year journey of figuring out who I actually am when I'm not being socially conditioned by our society. And so I think that when you don't know who you are, you end up not caring about yourself. And that's the kind of line of thought that can take you to doing something very careless with your life. And so the last eight years have been me getting to know myself with mixed results publicly, but um, <laughs> I'm generally overall happy with how it's gone. <laughs> And, and this, side, this kind of almost dislocation that you're talking about, about not knowing who you are uh, and these repeated suicide attempts, and to what extent do you correlate those with ideas about gender, the expectations about you in terms of being a woman or a young girl or a teenager? What's the relationship between those things? I think that men and women, I think we're both... So controlled, you know, I was talking to Ashling B, who's the stand-up comedian and writer and actor, and she was talking to me about the fact that the biggest number that the patriarchy ever did was on men. You know, so I think that men and women are both people who are suffering from our toxic ideals. But with women, it's as if there's a little chip instilled in you, like or like... Uh, put inside your brain for as soon as you can understand where you're told how to behave, how to dress. Uh, you are presented with Disney programs which tell you how to look and what the ideal of beauty is and what your role is. And it's all around you and you have very few, if any, role models who actually 
stand out. And when they do stand out, they become vilified and gaslit and uh, demonized by the media. Um, and so I guess I have just tried to use my career to be the person that I would have needed when I was young. And that really includes my mistakes that I've made publicly, because I think it's very important to see a woman be allowed to make mistakes. We are entitled to have the same amount of space as men to grow and learn. And, and so we should be afforded that. And that's why I'm so wildly open. <laughs> I have to send you the most fantastic cover from the Daily Mail with this of suffragettes campaigning where they take all these images of them when they're speaking and kind of angry in these distorted ways and then they write about how they're mad, how they're kind of out of control. I'm going to send you, it's just the most brilliant. I don't know if that's every picture of me ever. Like, it's really interesting the way in which I'm framed and the media is hilarious to me because I'm this very chilled, simple human who just has a couple of fair takes on the injustice of our society but the way I am portrayed is as if I am standing consistent as if I live on a soapbox and I am always screaming at everyone and the terminology they use around my very calmly uh, disputing is always Jamila Jamil slams critics Jamila Jamil bites back I just want to say I am so excited for the opportunity for you to meet Susie Orbach, psychotherapist, feminist, because I feel like there might be so much that you might have in common. Yeah. And um, she set up this women's therapy centre in 1976, which is completely pioneering at the time. Um, and I sent you that digital copy mm -hmm. of the leaflet yeah. um, that they used to open the centre. But I wanted to know, uh, what did you think of that leaflet? What, what struck you about it when you saw it? I guess it's simplicity is something that really struck me about it and the fact that it was just it just felt very honest and integral and I guess that's that if you see all of the movements within women's liberation that have ever worked it's often the ones that are the most blunt and simple in my opinion. That's really interesting that actually not overcomplicating something and I think you're right about that leaflet that it is I mean it's only probably like a hundred words that's all yeah. just saying this is who we are this is why this is what we're going to do. But it breaks the whole thing down as just very simple because that's what it is it's all very simple really we should give human beings the space to be individuals and and we do not we, we really, really go out of our way as a society to force people into boxes. And it's really bad for our mental health. And we see that with every gender. We need to make mental health a very simple conversation, something that is not stigmatized and not mystified. We need to just we need to treat it just the way that we would treat a sore throat. Yeah, that's so interesting, this kind of idea of the hysterical woman, the mad woman, the woman who's out of control, too loud, too embarrassing. This has been a kind of pervasive trope, I suppose, when we think about women. In fact, when we were curating this exhibition, the, the striking thing was just how unbelievably resilient women have been just to exist in a world that's been so kind of persistently oppressive. And, and this idea of the mad woman, the woman who's out of control, I'd love you to talk about how you've experienced that, you know, and how you've also resisted that as well. I think that we're programmed from as early as we can understand to be pleasing, to please other people, to be appropriate. And so there's something in particular about saying that we are mad or out of control or annoying or unlikable that is deliberately designed to trigger that early nerve in us that knows that we are supposed to be people pleasers. And so I think that that's a very specific tool used against women of like, you're not being very likable right now. And I think that 
it is a fear-mongering tactic to make us quiet down because we become afraid for our safety. I mean, I was talking about this recently on Instagram. I had this discussion somehow with about half a million people on my Instagram. It was just, it went on for about 24 hours. And I was talking about the fact that isn't it extraordinary how every single outspoken woman ever, we've all been cast as crazy, quote unquote, liars, stupid, and overly promiscuous. How can we all be crazy? How can that always be the correlation with the women who are truth tellers and whistleblowers? How are we all crazy and lying, uh, crazy, manipulative liars? And it used to be harder to identify because only one woman every couple of years would speak out. Post the sort of women, you know, the suffragette movement, I guess it was, it was very rare that women even would be have the access to a large enough audience to be considered outspoken. But I think now post Time's Up and Me Too, which has been a sort of resurgence of the women's liberation movement, there are so many of us speaking out that it, the pattern is becoming more obvious that we are all being categorized as crazy, manipulative liars. And so I think it's going to become harder and harder for them to get away with this. And what I've spoken about consistently is that discredit is the new death. They used to just kill us. They used to burn us or murder us or we would just go randomly missing. And now they discredit, they kill our reputation. And I go through this all the time because I'm incredibly outspoken. And because of that, there has been such a specific and consistent attempt for me to be painted as a hugely mentally unstable person it's frustrating and it's tedious but I'm still here I'm still alive I'm still fine they have not killed me does speaking out is it a bit like sort of exercising a muscle in that it becomes more possible to do it the more you do it in other words would you encourage more people to speak out yeah what I mean by that is do you have to steal yourself or now can you just kind of let rip and I think you start with micro truths you know things like if your coffee doesn't come correctly asking for it the way that you originally ordered it or the same thing with a meal (laughs) and if someone is interrupting you to ask them to please let you finish your sentence there are small ways in which you can start to build up your integrity to yourself no but what's so fascinating about that is that that sounds funny and sort of ridiculous but actually Mm -hmm. that women are not entitled to say excuse me could you be quiet I haven't finished or may I have a different coffee you know even that is a a sort of bold radical statement yes because we're it's because we're being considered difficult you know there is still an underlying subliminal messaging to all women everywhere that we are lucky to be in the room we are lucky to be allowed out of the kitchen And so if we are going to be allowed out, we must behave ourselves or else we will be sent back. Decorative, but ideally silent is the sort of, has been the sort of... exactly. And thin. We must be thin. (laughs) Um, So don't take up too much space. Yes. Gaining weight in itself is considered to be uh, disobedient because we are literally bursting out of the corset in which we've been put. And so, you know, I, I consider it to be an act of extreme rebellion to be willing to gain weight and to be willing to show off your cellulite. And, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of messaging now that says that self being content with yourself is one of the greatest acts of rebellion uh, that you can persist with. So build up from the micro truths all the way up to, you know, someone kisses you badly, tell them, oh, you know, I don't actually love being kissed that way or uh, don't put that there. Um, Not to be too explicit, but, um, you know, you can just slowly start to build up and up and up uh, towards what it is that you actually want to say. You know, I didn't just get here overnight. I didn't used to say how I felt all the time. I think it was it's really been the last eight years that I've started to fight back. And I did that to save my own life because... 
my depression that led me to suicide was created from repressed rage. And so in order to stop my depression, I have to express my rage whenever I feel it. I'm absolutely certain that so much of what you do and what you're saying will really resonate with Susie. Obviously, she's had a very different life, but she's also yeah. been an activist. And I, before she joins us, I wanted to know what it was that you want to explore with her, what you want to talk to her about. I want to know how things were then so I can compare them to how things are now to see if we have actually moved on. Because I don't feel as though we've been in an upwards trajectory since the beginning of the women's liberation movement. And so... I would A, like to know what happened and how it was able to be interrupted. And I would like to draw the parallel so I can kind of use that as a map for where we're at now because it's back. The women's liberation movement is back, especially as of the last four or five years. So I would love to use Susie's work as a kind of blueprint for where I'm at now. In case you don't know much about Susie Orbach, here's a quick crash course. She's a psychotherapist, writer, psychoanalyst and a big player in the 1970s women's liberation movement. And, as I mentioned earlier, she started with her friend and colleague Louise Eichenbaum, the first ever women's therapy centre in the UK. And after some minor lockdown video call difficulties, Susie joined us online. I think she's trying to join us, Jamila, so shall we invite her in? Yes. Hello, everybody. Hi. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. I'm just so thrilled to have you here, but really thrilled to be able to introduce you remotely to wonderful Jamila Jamil. Hello. And I just know you two are going to have a fabulous conversation, so I am going to sort of step back. So Jamila, here's Susie. Susie, the psychotherapist who set up the first Women's Therapy Centre in 1976 and then has done so much more. And I think you two uh, should start talking and I should be quiet now. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Polly. And I just want to say thank you so much to Susie for all of your work and the service for women that you have been fighting for for so long. I really appreciate how difficult that road must have been. And so it is a thrill to get to meet you. And I'm sure I have so much to learn. So Susie, what was it that prompted you to set up the Women's Therapy Centre? Because it was a women's therapy centre, not a treatment centre. No, no, because we didn't really think women needed treating. Right. I mean, we, we actually thought, felt society needed treating. It was the women's therapy centre. And I didn't set it up on my own. I set it up with Louise Eichenbaum. And we'd been studying something called women's studies as a BA, and then we'd trained as psychotherapists. And we were very interested at that particular point at how women, there were no services whatsoever in which women's actual voices could be heard. Women were hysterics or they were suffering depressively because that was something to do with their biology, but it was really patriarchal psychology. So we wanted to set up a center for women to be listened to by other women and to be able to develop new theories and new practices of working with women. And that was part of what I think the Women's Therapy Center and certainly Louise and I were trying to understand is how women came to accept second-class citizenship which we wouldn't even put it, they wouldn't have even put in those terms, was the way to be. That how pleasing others and being a midwife to their activities. And it was really important to be pleasing all the time and to be a facilitator and to remember everybody's birthday. Doing all emotional labor in heterosexual relationships 
that was all what we were exploring. And what would you say made the treatment at the Women's Therapy Centre different to other facilities? Well, we listened to women. We got to learn about women's experience, whether they were in relationships of abuse, which we wouldn't have used that word. We would now use that, whether they were in coercive situations, whether they were felt threatened, or we'd listen to women who really had been in mental hospitals and felt completely marginalized that way, or listen to women who looked very successful on the outside but felt kind of fraudulent and fragile on the inside. And it mm -hmm. wasn't that we'd say, oh, well, that's because you're a woman, you're feeling that way, because that isn't therapy. But we did have lots of groups where we would have topics and then it would become very clear that why they feel insecure or why they feel jealous or why they feel envious of other women or what, why they have difficulty with anger or with assertion or issues around the body. Then, in a way, we collectivized or deprivatized that experience. But in the individual therapy, it was much more what was the individual story for that person. I think that that's often the key is women together in groups. I think that's such an important part of, of our growth because it helps us realize it's harder to gaslight us when we are able to share all of our stories and we find common themes throughout our stories, common denominators. And I think that there's still not really enough of that. There's not enough of us being encouraged to gather. In fact, sometimes we are ridiculed over it still because I think the patriarchy recognizes that divided we can be conquered. Absolutely. And my generation, I was really lucky because that was what was going on, was what we called consciousness raising groups. The difference from therapy was that instead of sharing your story with a lot of women and all feeling the same way about it, then you could go and think about, well, what was the individual situation that made it particularly hard for you to risk doing something different? And then, of course, you have a long period of like, so-called post-feminism before your generation comes along and has to rediscover that misogyny is alive and well and inside of all of us. Yeah, I have a couple of questions about that. So one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is because I feel like your generation made so much explicit progress and started so many of the, the tracks for where we're at now, but I feel as though it was interrupted at some point between where you are and where I am at now, my generation are picking back up where you left off. And I wonder what happened? Well, we lost. <laughs> but how? Gloria Steinem talks a lot about the fact that, you know, there's always like a bigger pushback against liberation of the oppressed. And I, I wonder what happened and what that looked like and what it felt like. Well, long before you were born, I think there was a very, very serious challenge to society going on and it was met with a very strong challenge from the right a bit like what happened over brexit a lot of constituencies gathered together around margaret thatcher and the idea of dismantling any kind of collectivist notion of society or society as the thing that ought to underpin us just jumping in here because I think Jamila's question is so interesting and it's something that I've reflected on many times. I stand before you tonight in my red star chiffon evening gown. 
Susie talks about the 1980s and what happened to feminism in that period of time, citing Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister, as a very problematic figure for women's liberation movement activists and feminists. The Iron Lady of the Western World. <laughs> she was indeed very divisive. For some, she was a sign that women could achieve the very highest office, but for many women, Margaret Thatcher effectively reproduced the same structures and the same problems that had pre-existed and was in effect a woman in a man's role acting as a man. This house and this country can have confidence in this government today. A sort of smashing up of the rules of negotiation between unions and bosses, and you got a very different ideology of what a society should look like. And part of that was predicated on creating insecurity in jobs, selling in America religion in, and fame, and in Britain riches, which was ne had never been sort of something the masses had been sold on, and celebrity. She's talking about the 80s and the 90s. And for some people, this is a really positive period of history, a moment when the individual was celebrated, when a few people became fantastically wealthy, a kind of triumph of capitalism. But for many others, the same period is associated with trade unions losing their power and community being undermined at the expense of the individual. You know, in this context, where the individual became everything, feminism seemed somehow to lose its way. It was absolutely devastating. You know, it's interesting you talk about fame and the rise of media and capitalism and consumerism and how those were used as tools of not only oppression and the fact that women are targeted en masse. I mean, you look at the statistics now and we are 80% of consumers. So it's very clear that everything is, is positioned to make us spend our money and they, they invent false problems that we have for them to be able to sell us things that can fix those fake problems. But also, I feel as though media was used as a sort of example to women of what we should be. Always. And therefore, a lot of beautiful, very slender, predominantly white and inoffensive women were brought in at the forefront of media. And because it was no longer just magazines, it was television, it was it was uh, tabloids, it was inescapable. I feel as though we, the generation of women became just sort of sodden with the example of what we're supposed to be. And I, I think we are only just now starting to really penetrate how toxic that is. And I guess it's a big part of my work. And just finally, just a couple of years ago, just telling everyone en masse just to fuck off because it is emotionally exhausting <laughs> to not know who you are and to be repeatedly and consistently told who you're supposed to be. God, I wish I'd grown up in a time where I didn't have social media. Not only are you up against that, but you're also up against this notion of needing to perform. Mm and be involved in being your own brand and selling yourself. It's a completely different notion of what it means to be human than my generation grew up with. We might have been oppressed, but we kind of oppressed across the social spectrum. Whereas I think the individualism is just so shocking and so hard. The conditions of being female have been to do with having to sell yourself or perform something. and. That seems to me really cruel as opposed to 
being part of a group consciousness. I agree. I absolutely agree. And and then it, there's a sort of double layer to that because not only are you expected to perform, yeah. but if you don't want to, you aren't just left by the wayside. You are categorically attacked and they attempt to destroy you, especially if you've reached some level of prominence and then you are disobedient, quote unquote, you know, as to what it is that you're supposed to be. Who's the they in this case? The they is the, they is the oppressive patriarchal media, in particular in Britain. We have found all these different ways to make women feel afraid of their disobedience. And in one of those, which I think has been a prominent part of my work, one of those ways has been to make women feel as though they have to maintain a very low body weight. Now, you were one of the first people who truly identified the politicizing of a woman's body with your book, Fat as a Feminist Issue. And I wonder if you would expand upon your thoughts behind that. How is fat a feminist issue to you? I could write a whole book about it. Um, (laughs) I've continued to write about bodies and anorexia and and I can't seem to give up the topic because everywhere we look, whether it's photoshopping babies to make them look cute and getting them bras when they're babies, the cosmetic surgery apps for three-year-olds, girls are really learning that they need to be performing for camera all the time. So they're knowing that their bodies are not sites of excitement, extension or stability, but are sites for manipulation and change and that part of their capacity to engage people will be passing for whatever constitutes cute or sexy. One of the things that really disturbs me is how little girls now gyrate as though they're the kind of things that you used to do when you were like in your, maybe you did when you were in your late teens or twenties. I'm supposed to answer your question about, is it still a feminist issue? Women are not supposed to take up space. And if they do take up space, then they have to take it up in a very particular kind of way. I consider it to be extra homework. I think it's a deliberate tactic of the patriarchy to distract us. They set us these impossible tasks because if we have less hours in the day to think about our business or our mental health than they do, because they are not waking up as early to do their hair and makeup, they are being able to eat as much as nutritionally their brain would need them to function at a high level. Because of that, they are able to thrive in a way that we don't have the time or opportunity to. And I guess that's been part of my slow but sure kind of resistance against these beauty techniques. I think what's really shocked me is that in the last 40 years, what women have come to believe is that it doesn't really matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you work in a lab or you're a cleaning lady. You need to have an eye on yourself at all times to make sure that when you're doing your job, you look a certain kind of way as though there's a camera. No, for sure. I was going to say I had that when I was on BBC Radio 1. I was fat shamed frequently and I was like, well, you can't see me. Why do you just need to know I'm thin over the airwaves? What sense does that make? It's so strange how we, how you're so right that it exists way beyond Hollywood and the camera, that all this messaging has trickled down into every single one of us in every single corner of society. Exactly. And that, the reason I mentioned the cosmetic surgery apps is that we're preparing little girls for an idea that their bodies aren't ever going to be okay as they are. We're told that our bodies aren't for us. They are in every way for other people. Um, All of which I think definitely correlates to our mental health because it's now this extra level of shame, extra level of policing, this extra level of distraction. I was wondering if you could tell me, where do you think we are at now with women's mental health? Do you think we are in a better place or do you think we are in a different 
or birthplace? <laughs> Such a good question. Because I think we're probably both in both places. I think it's on the agenda. Before the Women's Therapy Centre, it was only on the agenda as women are in some major way in deficit. Whereas now, I think there's a lot of shame about aspects of emotional hurt or the inability to do what you want to do. But at least it's an open topic and at least we talk about emotions these days, but it doesn't mean they're, people are necessarily feeling better. Obviously, a movement or your kind of activity and all the various organizations that are talking to young women and women will help people feel less isolated. And that is huge in terms of mental health, is to feel that you can be supported yeah. and understood. Yeah, I think we are probably up against, in some ways, more. I definitely don't underestimate the struggles of what would have happened decades ago. And I think that social media has been a really interesting device of progress and devolution because it has allowed us to reach each other and recognise our shared pain across the entire globe. But at the same time, it has also been a medium through which capitalism and consumerism can prey on us in these really insidious and sometimes subliminal, sometimes very blatant ways. And I, I really worry for the kids who are younger than me, who are now growing up with that as their main device of information. Yeah, it's because it's not that they go online, they live online. I think we're in a very interesting moment. I hope that we are shifting in the right direction. I believe we are, but we wouldn't have been able to without your work to set us up in the first place. So thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> Dare to struggle. <laughs> Dare to struggle. I think everyone should have that printed on a T-shirt. I so enjoyed hearing Jamila and Susie in conversation. And I wanted to know if Jamila was surprised by anything that she'd heard. I think it was her pity for my generation. For sure, that was something that surprised me. But the other things don't, because I think my work is just an extension of, of hers. You know, I think I've learned a lot of these things over time. And I think the similarities that they faced to now is probably always the most shocking thing, where you realise that the same things they were fighting for four decades ago were so painfully interrupted. And so we're still dealing with so many of those same issues. Do you feel optimistic about how people's relationship and particularly women's relationship with mental health will be, let's say, five years from hence or 10 years? Do you feel the trajectory is moving in the right, the right way? I do. And, and weirdly, like my own work has been has been the thing that's given me a sense of hope in the fact that I thought the I Way movement that I started would be crushed and dissolved within weeks. And the fact that we're going strong two years later, it's so organic and it's only gaining strength. And so I think that we have hit upon a moment of boiling point. And I think women are just fucking done. I think they are done in a way that we have never been done before. And I think a big part of that has been social media and us seeing, oh my God, this is happening to everyone. And I do think that we have such wonderful, prominent figures who resist the patriarchy um, for our generation to see. So many great writers like Roxanne Gay, like Ashley C. Ford. And so I do think this time it's going to last. And bearing in mind her hopeful last thought, I had one final, quite personal question for Jamila. I have a 15-year-old daughter and she's asked me to ask you, 
What advice would you give to your 15-year-old self? She loves you, by the way. That's very sweet. Uh, my advice to my 15-year-old self is be very mindful of the things that you say to yourself. If those are things that you would never tolerate being said to another woman that you love, then you are not allowed to say those things to yourself. You have to be very, very, very consistent in checking your inner bully and making sure that you hold your own inner bully to the same standards you hold the rest of society. Words to live by. You've been listening to Unfinished Business with me, Polly Russell. Join me in two weeks when we're hopping on the saddle and exploring how cycling has been a liberating sport for women from the 19th century to the present day. I'll be joined by Olympian Victoria Pendleton, blogger and writer Jules Walker, academic Kat Youngnickel, and a wonderful women's only cycling club. <laughs>